pour profusely into every mind today the knowledge of your love so that we can hear Paul's prayer that we together with all the saints might comprehend what is the height and depth and breadth and length of your love and to know your love which surpasses all knowledge that we may be filled up to the fullness of you, our God. We pray that you grant this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. It's so good to be together in worship. Uh, sorry about the lighting situation today. I know that uh, has been a problem. We had a power problem this week on Wednesday when that storm came through, and I think we're just now finding all of the things that might have been affected by it as we get everything up and running. So pray for us as we go through this and uh, get it all straight. Um, Interesting title to the sermon today, Intentionally Ironic, because of the text that we're reading. There's actually a uh, song by that name by some of the folks who were uh, affiliated with the group, the Eurythmics. Anybody remember the Eurythmics? Go back a little ways? Yeah, sweet dreams are made of this. Okay, so uh, there's actually a song, Slaughterhouse of Love, very interesting, kind of a political song. Um, I wasn't trying to be provocative with such a title, but sincere because that's exactly what's described in Romans 8. So join me there in that really interesting text. The middle of it is sort of a just a refresher on how God's people have suffered through the ages. I was reading about Christian persecution this week, and I will share more about that specifically next week. But as I was reading, Time Magazine had run an article in January of this year um, confirming a study that, uh, no, it was Newsweek, not Time, uh, confirming a study that said that Christian persecution in 2017 and 2018 is at the highest level since the early church. And they had some links to some actual statistics. When I talked about suffering this past week, it was really interesting because I got a, a text message that provoked me to a lot of thought through the course of the week by a dear brother who, who asked about suffering and uh, kind of shared, you know, I, I personally have not suffered a whole lot. That was sort of the gist of the text. And how am I to interpret Paul's uh, writing uh, in light of having not personally suffered a whole lot? So I, I kind of baked on that a good bit this week. Um, and one of the things that I came to realize was that suffering is not necessarily only a personal thing. This was, God really convicted me of this, and I truly felt um, the level of my disconnect from the global church when I read the statistics and then reflected on Paul and what he said in 1 Corinthians. He says, if one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer with it. And there has to be a sense in which if I am not personally suffering, I need to come to grips with the fact that I ought to be identifying with 
praying with and literally suffering with through prayer, through seeking ways to relieve suffering of my global brothers and sisters in Christ. That there ought to be some kind of real awareness. And and I want to tell you all, I live a pretty insulated life. I mean, I'm kind of packed up there at 2515 Donahue Ferry and i got the A.C. running. I've got a comfortable place to sleep. I took a really hot shower this morning. I stayed in it as long as I wanted, as long as it didn't make me any later than I was for Sunday school. I mean, it, it was... I'm comfortable. I really haven't known a lot of personal suffering. I've had some little bumps along the way. But really, in terms of what my brothers and sisters are going through globally... I'm very detached from that. And listen, I've chosen that detachment. And I pour most of my funding into my comforts and my own isolation and insulation from the troubles of the world and the troubles of my brothers and sisters who globally are literally living in the slaughterhouse of love. They're being killed today. One of the Statistics that I read was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 200, maybe 230, I think it was, uh, believers were murdered monthly. That works out to several a day that are actually slaughtered. They're murdered for their faith globally. And we are kind of so isolated and insulated from it, we don't even talk about it. It's not on our radar. Yet the Bible clearly commands that there should be an identification. When Jesus confronted the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul was dragging off Christians to prison, dragging off Christians to death, participating in holding the robes and coats of those who stoned Stephen, and Jesus didn't stop and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Jesus understood and taught something that it's important for us to kind of wrap our hearts around. When we're reading through Romans 8 and the slaughter that's mentioned in Romans 8, that we are a corporate body, one body in Christ. And that when any part of the body is persecuted, the whole body is persecuted in such a way that Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my body parts? Why are you persecuting my followers? No. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So that Jesus identifies with us in such a way that He calls us Him. So that there ought to be something that comes from that in the knowledge of our coping with the global persecution of Christians. That there should be with us a camaraderie, an identification, a oneness with them that allows them to know that we are part of them, we're concerned for them, and there are lots of Ways to access those things. We can access them through the internet, there's publications, there's mail outs, there's emails, there's a lot of ways we can know about the persecuted church globally because they are us and we are 
them. And so, when it says in verse 36, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long, he's identifying with a corporateness that goes all the way back to Romans 8.28 when we talked about God causes all things to work together for good to those corporately who love God. So that God is at work corporately in us and we are being persecuted, slaughtered corporately. And so today it's, it's really interesting if we preach on this idea of slaughterhouse and you're like me, really comfortable, you may think, I don't know that I identify with that very much. But when we start thinking globally about what the whole church is going through and where our brothers and sisters are and what the real pain of their lives is, it will help us to comprehend and lay hold of this text in a different way. And it will also prepare us to speak to people who really are deeply hurting when we might not personally be suffering very much. So let's jump into our presentation and sermon today. I Always thankful for the folks who run the uh, the slide shows for us. Uh, they do a lot of behind the scenes work to get us ready. The goal of Romans eight is to encourage us and build our endurance in the midst of suffering. It's kind of a statement that you hear a lot. You're either coming out of suffering in the middle of suffering, or headed to some suffering. And that's kind of true of human existence. Some of that suffering may not be because of our faith in Christ directly, maybe indirectly because of that. But the Apostle Paul wanted us to be ready for that. And the danger of those things that Paul kind of covered in verse 31, he talked about opposition. Who can be against us? Well, we acknowledged last week, a lot of folks can. The world can be against us in their hatred of God and what he uh, gives us as truth. Um, I was watching a really precious presentation last night of one of the men who had been a part of that white supremacy group that had marched a year ago. And uh, the story was about him getting saved in a church with an African-American pastor. So he goes from involvement with this white supremacy group to salvation led under the teaching of an African-American pastor. And the video was the African-American pastor taking him out into the, the, the ocean for baptism. And the beauty of that moment of his baptism where he's being baptized by someone representative of the very group that he so defiantly hated and had such uh, venom towards. It's a beautiful picture, but uh, in some of the comments, he was posted on Twitter, and some of the comments after it said, great, now that he has uh, done this and repented of this hatred, why doesn't he repent of all these other things that God teaches in the Bible? Uh, so he started saying, you know, repent of not believing in homosexuality is a good thing. Uh, stop uh, uh, having these ideas about marriage and uh, only between one man and one woman for, for life. And so they were just attacking viciously the things that God actually does teach um, and kind of hinting at the fact that this white supremacy was actually a result of evangelical Bible theology. So there's opposition out there. It doesn't take long to find it. It's ugly. Also, there's accusation. 
None of us have a crystal clear record. None of us have such a record that could stand the test of God's judgment when all is revealed. You have that place in the book of the Revelation where it says, and books were opened, and it was the record of all of our deeds. And so it's at this moment that that everything is revealed about what we really are and what we're really like. And so there are accusations against us that would lead us to condemnation. So we talked about that last week and how that would bring us into the final thing that we ought to have fear of apart from Christ, and that is separation from God. Uh, The loss of God as potential father and family, savior and king, lord and redeemer, and only the presence of God as judge and condemner because of our unrepentant hearts. So, in order for us to understand what Paul is dealing with, pick up in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So the concept that Paul's going to talk about for the next five verses, four verses, is the concept of separation. And so in order to understand that, if you'll grab your outline, we'll start, number one, in order to understand the idea and threat of separation from the love of God in Christ, we must first understand our union with God in Christ. Now, this is a piece of Paul's doctrine of the book of Romans that is very dear to us in understanding the security of our salvation. Somehow, um, the way that some people have presented salvation is in such a way that it's this kind of fragile thing that if we mess it up, it gets broken and we lose it. That it's this little small thing that if you don't cling just right to God, then you're probably not going to make the cut at the end. And I've been in situations and been around folks who that's part of the doctrinal system of their their church, it's part of the doctrinal system of what they grow up in, and it's kind of manipulative because it keeps you a little off balance that the security, therefore, is kind of built upon your performance after the fact of salvation. And if your performance isn't kind of up to snuff, then you probably ought to doubt whether or not you're going to get into heaven at all. And that's a very dangerous approach to what Paul teaches very clearly against. And so we need to understand this idea, this concept of union. Now, let me show you where that is mentioned in the text we're in now. And then let's reflect back on where it actually comes from. It's mentioned, come down to verse 39... And I'm not going to be able to study 39 effectively today. We're going to put that off next week. But I want you to see it says, These things, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God. And then he mentions something. He mentions that it's in Christ Jesus. Now that seals the end of Romans 8. Okay, That the love of God is in Christ Jesus. But if you'll think through Romans 8, you'll remember that Romans 8 opened with the same statement. 
So that there's kind of a little sandwich going on here. you got these two pieces of bread that's holding the meat of this sandwich of Romans 8 together. Because Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you got in Christ Jesus ending Romans 8. You've got in Christ Jesus opening Romans 8. So there is in Christ Jesus a union between us and God in Christ. Let's look at that union. First, Let's notice our union is found in a place. Where? In Christ Jesus. That's a literal place. The Bible talks about in Romans chapter 5 that you were born in Adam. Alright? Somehow, when Adam sinned, you were in Adam, and you then were born with the nature of Adam, And, in a sense, in a mystical way, with the guilt of Adam hanging over you, with the consequences of Adam following you, so that in Adam all die. So the consequences of his actions, you were some way in him, so that what he did directly affected you, so that you're going to die. Your physical body cannot escape the reality that it's going to die because you were in Adam. You were in a place. You were in Adam. And so Romans 5 kind of fleshes out the theology of that. But then it talks about a promise to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that our new birth, our faith, our new life is a new life that's In Christ Jesus. We're moved out of being in Adam and into being Christ. In Christ Jesus. And so our union is found in a place. The person of Jesus Christ. This is not a small piece of theology. It is Paul's argument in Romans 8. The heart of his argument is that you now occupy a new realm irrevocable, irreversible, that you have been placed miraculously by the new birth in Christ Jesus, so that now when God surveys you and your destiny, it is all tied up to you being in Christ Jesus. That you can no longer be seen apart from that. And so, in Christ Jesus is the place. Now that doesn't just arrive in Romans 8. It's not just arriving in Romans 6. It's not just arriving in Romans 5. It's actually given to us in Romans 3. Right after one of the most popular, most quoted verses in the Bible. Romans 3.23. We know that one. Let's say it together. What is it? For all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. We know that one. Romans 3.23, super popular. If you're a Romans road guy or gal, you always drive through that text helping folks see their sinfulness. But if you look right after that, you have this concept introduced immediately following that. It says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, which is where? In Christ Jesus. That is laid out for the first time doctrinally, clearly in Romans 3 to say, this is where you're going to find this. You're going to find redemption. You're going to find a gift. You're going to find grace in Christ Jesus. So that's the second part of our union. Our union brings us into grace. It takes us out of law under which we are condemned. Under the law, we are sinners. We are doomed. Damnation hangs over us under the law because we are transgressors. We have sinned under God's law and have over us the the promise of wrath and condemnation because of the breach of God's law. So we're moved out of law, but we have to be moved into something because the law can't just evaporate. Because Christ fulfilled the law in our place, because He lived the law's requirements of perfection, and He died the law's requirements of wrath and rejection and condemnation, He fulfilled the law for us both in life and in death. So in Him, I have all of the law fulfilled in and for me through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul is building his case on in Christ Jesus, because it is there that we find the grace of God. So our union brings us into grace. Go to chapter 5. Look in verse 1 and verse 2. In Romans 5, there's this beautiful picture. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained our introduction into this grace in which... We now stand. You are standing in a place. You are standing in a grace. So here is what the Scripture is wanting you to lay hold of before you start grappling with Romans 8 and this promise of the love of God in Christ Jesus isn't like, I need to run over to Jesus and pull some of that love out. He's not talking about a reservoir from which we draw. Listen carefully. He's talking about a place in which we stand. I'm not drawing on grace. I'm standing. I'm occupying the place, Christ Jesus, where grace is all of all that I have. It is my hope. My salvation, my premise, all of it is in grace. And so, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, there is a place in Christ Jesus that a person enters into an eternal, irrevocable, irreplaceable, unchangeable relationship in which by the inhabitation of that place, everything promised to the saints of God 
comes true through occupying that place, through repentance of sin, faith in Jesus Christ, regeneration and the new birth which God provides to and for us, enabling us to believe these things that we believe. And so, our union brings us into grace. That's where you are. This is why Romans 8 doesn't just stop with, there's therefore now no condemnation. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And you could say, outside of Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God did, sending His Son in the likeness of human flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. What's happening there? The outflow of the law was carried out against Jesus. And all of those who are in Jesus get all of the benefits of the outflow of the law carried out in Jesus. What was the outflow? First, His perfect and sinless life. He did everything under the law that was required, never breaking it, always keeping it in absolute perfection, both in motive and deed. And then, as a guiltless one, He was qualified then to be the only suitable offering for the guilty one He took my place, He took your place on the cross so that all of those who are in Him get both benefits. The benefits of being seen as a completer of the law, the benefits of being seen as condemnation already passed, so that I stand, listen, I stand today free in Jesus. This is so important for understanding how to navigate the rest of what he says in Romans 8. And so, it's this beauty of a union. And then that union is pictured again In Romans 6, through baptism, it says, Just as He was buried, you in union with Him, you were buried also. Paul's going to tell you later that the glory of you being buried with Jesus is this. You're dead to the law. The law no longer has claim on you because you died with Christ. You've been hidden with Christ. That's glorious. You're dead to the law. The law can't touch you. You are free from the law. We have a hymn. Free from the law, oh happy condition. How many of y'all are old enough to remember that one? Help me. A couple of gray hands up there. I mean gray heads. Alright. Here's the deal. Free from the law, oh happy condition. This is the celebration that leads us into the endurance that goes on in Romans 8. Paul is celebrating in Romans 8. When he gets to the end, this guy's on his tiptoes calling out the glory of God in Christ Jesus so that no matter what happens to you on this earth, you have this irrevocable truth. Nothing can separate you from Him. Nothing. And so, the third thing that's important in understanding this is our union is an experience of and is maintained by His embrace, not by yours. Listen carefully, it's not your grip that's going to get you through this week. Are you hearing me? It's not your grip that's going to get you through this week. It's His. It is that God has laid hold of you in such a glorious way through the new birth that He will relentlessly keep hold of you no matter what comes. No matter how it comes, He will hold on to you. Now this is a glorious, unbelievable, inconceivable truth that God is at work 
in this way. Paul is not trying to get you to work harder for your salvation. He's trying to get you to rest better in your salvation. Paul's not trying to manipulate people into more Christian living. To be at church more. To read their Bible more. He's not trying to get you to be a better missionary and to go more. He's not trying to get you to be a better witness and witness more. That's not what he's after in this. What he's after is trying to get you to rest in such a way that in that rest, the compelling glory of what God has done for you in Christ will make you better at everything that you do. It'll make you a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better child, a better missionary, a better worker, a better whatever it is you do. Because you will have settled in your heart something so profound as the fact that God's limitless love rests upon you and you are in Christ Jesus and there is no separation. There's no separation. You have become such a part of Him in such a way that it can't be changed. Paul is not trying to build better activity. He's trying to build better worship. So that by the profoundness of God's love for you in Christ Jesus... By all of the assurances that flow from God's love for you in Christ Jesus. That you, in resting, hear the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your soul. You see, the Pharisees knew how to saddle people with more labor. How to make them feel guilty. How to saddle them with a performance issue. So that they were always wondering, am I doing enough? And only if you ever got into this elite, false, prideful group, would you ever have some sense that everything was good between you and God. That's not what he's doing here. Paul is trying to bring you to rest. He wants a Sabbath for your heart. So you can go home and you can sit down and you can know that the embrace that you are held by is God Himself holding you. That the grace in which you stand is freely offered as a gift not tied to your performance, past, present, or future, but solely at the pleasure of God in giving this gift. And that the one place, the only place you can ever know it, is the place called in Christ Jesus. So that if you are in Christ Jesus today, there should be a Sabbath for your heart. There should be rest for your soul.
Church doesn't do really well at that. We try to keep everybody busy. Because somehow we think that activity equals godliness. But I really believe that the heart of a healthy church and a healthy church member is a Sabbath for our soul where we rest in the glory of God's love for us in Christ Jesus in such a way that we begin to recover and to heal from the brokenness of life, from the brokenness of sin, and we begin to enjoy and worship in such a way that compels us into the betterness of all the areas of our life. That it springs forth from the well of where we are in Christ Jesus. I really had more that I wanted to share with you today, but I'm going to stop here. And I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. The first one is, do you know that you're in the right place? Can you, with all honesty and sincerity, say, That by the work of God in your heart to bring regeneration and the new birth, by your faith in Christ, that you are today in Christ Jesus. I'm not asking you if you're headed there. I'm not asking if you're working toward it. I really want to know, could you, if this was the last breath of your life, and you gasped out the last just ounce of life you would ever have on this earth, and you whisked into eternity, would the whisking place that you are taken to be the arrival of in Christ Jesus? Or would you be found today still to be in Adam? In flesh. In condemnation. I really want you to work this out. I don't want to manipulate you, but I want you to know this. I want you this very day to have this assurance. That you're in Christ Jesus. He welcomes. When Jesus talks about being in Christ Jesus, He says, come unto me. Isn't that a beautiful invitation? The God of the universe takes on flesh and blood, shows up, and here's what He says. Come unto me. Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. You're tired of the struggle with sin. You're tired of the fake righteousness. You're tired of trying to work all these things out through your religion, through your morality, through your efforts. You're just worn out from it. And He's yelling, Come to me! Come to me! I'll give you rest! I want you there. So do you know your place? Second, knowing your place, are you really resting in grace? Can you right now just kind of sit back and say, you know, everything that's coming to me in all of eternity and all the good that God is ever going to bring me is totally untied to how I performed in all of my religious things. It is totally tied to His goodness to me in Christ Jesus. 
That He poured out His love for me on the cross. That He was raised from the dead. That He sits at the right hand of God interceding for me. All of this is purely by grace. It is not of works. I'm not going to boast. It is Jesus alone. And knowing that, are you resting right now in His embrace? Can you really let Him love you? In all your brokenness. You have trouble with other people loving you. You push them away when they get too close because you're afraid. Listen, you're afraid if they knew everything, they wouldn't really love you. So you're scared. Scared of love, scared of closeness, scared of intimacy, scared of relationships. And you're holding people at a distance. Listen, Jesus knows everything. When the book of the Revelation opens up and he says his first words to the church, you know what he says? I know. Do you know that's the scariest thing in the whole book of the Revelation? It's not all them scorpions coming up and stinging people and all that blood running through the streets. It's this. Jesus says, I know. He knows it all. And yet, in his knowledge, he has chosen to personally love you. And He will hold you like no one else can hold you. He will keep you like no one else can keep you. He will fill you like no one else can fill you. He will never leave or forsake you. This is our God. Would you bow with me? Perhaps you arrived today and uh, the thing that was on your heart was not the thing that's most important. You were worried about something else that was going on in life and something else that was going to happen today or this week and your mind was just distracted and you get here and you sing a few songs and pray a little and see a baptism and all of a sudden the Lord begins to deal with you through His Word and you know now that something so beautiful is offered to you. How could you how could you go away from it? Come on. How could you say no to this kind of love? And yet you're thinking about just pushing it off one more time. Listen. His love for you is so gracious, so endearing, so embracing that it will be your eternal joy. Would you turn to Him now? Would you believe this good news that He loves you, that He died for you, that He was raised from the dead, and that He would take you if you would but say yes? Believer, you're here today, but you've been toying with grace. You've been toying with the ideas and you haven't rested in them. You need to repent of some things. Would you deal with that today? Just let Him go ahead and bring you to total obedience, total confession, total rest. Some of you just need to hear the words of God when He says, Cease striving and know that I am God. You just need to quit wrestling and pushing away and trying to do it all your own way. Today, 
You need to rest. You need a Sabbath for your heart, for your mind, for your soul. You need to go home, put your feet up, and just read how glorious the crucifixion is. Listen to the love of God poured out for you in Christ. Bask in it. Drink it. Rejoice in it. Worship. Talk about it. Believer, would you return to your rest? However God's working in your heart today, would you stand? Would you just respond to His call?